I'm Nick Harvey-Doyle, a Ngunnawan man from the northern tablelands of New South Wales. The Yarn podcast is made on the unceded land of the Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Bunurong people. We'd like to acknowledge First Nations people as the first storytellers. We pay our respects to elders past and present. Always was, always will be, Aboriginal land. From the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne, this is The Yarn. I'm Thomas Phillips. When we imagine great mysteries, we think of distant galaxies or unexplorable ocean depths. But one of the greatest mysteries is a lot closer to home. It's in our heads. The human brain is the most complex data processor in the known universe but we still have very little idea how consciousness actually works. This week, we're bringing you three stories that shed light on the intricacies of our minds. It's the first episode of Dark Matters, our new series about the fundamental essence of life and how so much of it remains a mystery to us. These stories were produced in collaboration with all the best mentors for the Science Gallery's new show, Dark Matters, The exhibition is open now and includes a listening station where you can hear work from our students. First up, a story about a psychoactive drug doctors have depended on for almost 200 years, even though its impacts on the brain aren't fully understood. Valentina Bolter investigates anesthetic. When I got my wisdom teeth out, it was quite a complicated surgery. But the surgery didn't hurt. In fact, I don't actually remember the surgery because the dentist told me it was best if I went under a general anaesthetic. It's a common medical procedure with the World Health Organization estimating 230 million people each year are treated with a general anaesthetic. And going under a general anaesthetic is a slightly different experience for everyone. Got asked to count like, you know, 10 to 1, and I think I made it as far as 8. Felt like I was talking to the doctor and then just fell asleep. Everything just went black. But do you actually know why general anaesthetics work? No, I don't really. No clue at all. Um, No, not really. I just trusted the doctor. So if no one here knows the answer, maybe we should go back in time to see if we can find the answer there. The year is 1846. Pope Pius has been selected as the new pope. The colony of New Zealand has just been granted self-government and in Massachusetts, dentist William Morton has just performed the first public demonstration of general anaesthetic. An article published in the People's Journal of Medicine refers to anaesthesia as The power to still the sense of pain, to veil the eye and memory from all the horrors of an operation. We've cured pain! Only one slight issue. No one actually knew why it worked. And as it turns out, almost 200 years later, no one still really knows why it works. General anaesthetics have been one of the greatest mysteries of medicine, because consciousness is one of the deepest, darkest unknowns of science. But that could all be changing now. I spoke to Professor Bruno Van Swinderen from the University of Queensland, who has recently made some breakthroughs in our understanding of general anaesthetics and how our brain works, and the dangerous consequences of it. So the synapses where there's two neurons talking to each other, postsynaptic, presynaptic, and they communicate by sending chemicals from one to the other. And then we found, and others have found, that general anesthetics also 
affect the presynaptic side uh, so that it's basically preventing neurons from releasing those, those communication chemicals. Now, for those of us who don't know our presynapses from our postsynapses, essentially, to understand Professor Bruno's work, we need to think of our brain like a giant network of highways. Now, on a normal day, there's cars whizzing in every direction, going from one side of town to the other. Just like how in our brains, our neurons are firing messages from one part of the brain to the other. But essentially, what general anaesthetics is doing is stopping these cars from driving at all. Or in scientific terms, our presynaptic neurons are prohibited from firing any chemical messages to our postsynaptic neurons. And then that's when it gets interesting, right? So our average human brain has a, like 100 billion neurons, and every neuron has maybe 1,000 connections. That's like a trillion potential places in the brain that anesthetics are preventing things from happening. And what that means then, and the way we see it right now, or at least the way I see it, is that, yes, general anesthetics are a sedative, but then they also cause, at the same time, a failure of the brain by preventing all these trillion points of contact from talking normally to each other. This presynaptic understanding of general anaesthetics has been a huge revelation in the world of medicine, as it helps us to better understand one of the dangers of general anaesthetic, which is post-operative cognitive dysfunction. This is a big hidden secret of general anesthesia, that if you're over 65, or if you have Parkinson's or Alzheimer's, it's not recommended to have a long general anesthesia, because recovery is really, really difficult. Around 50% of people who receive cardiac surgery over the age of 65 never fully recover. Their general anaesthetic never fully wears off. If you want to somehow deal with post-operative cognitive dysfunction, which is a big problem, there's no other way than understanding, okay, this is what anaesthetics actually are doing. In 44 years' time, in 2066, I'll be 65. By then, the Australian Bureau of Statistics estimates 20% of the Australian population will be over the age of 65. Anesthesia and post-operative cognitive dysfunction pose a real risk to the future of Australia, which is why the work of researchers like Professor Bruno, who's working to uncover these hidden risks, is so crucial. Because without knowing why anaesthetics work, we can't know what they're doing to our brain. That was Valentina Bolter. Next, Amelia Costigan on how certain illicit drugs could help solve our mental health crisis. This is drugs. This is your brain on drugs. Any questions? Turn on. Tune in. Drop out. America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug abuse. The Western world has been fighting a war on drugs since the 1970s, when a moral panic around the rising hippie movement led to a prohibition on the clinical use of ancient psychoactive drugs like magic mushrooms. But the therapeutic potential of psychedelics has been known to the scientific community for decades. Recent clinical trials have shown that psilocybin, the active ingredient in magic mushrooms, has life-changing potential for people with treatment-resistant depression. Australia will become the world's first country to legalise the medical use of psychedelics this year. 
From the 1st of July, authorised psychiatrists will be able to prescribe psilocybin for post-traumatic stress disorder and treatment-resistant depression. The treatments that we have for a lot of mental health disorders aren't particularly effective. We haven't had a new sort of type of therapeutic for the treatment of depression or psychological distress in over 50 years. That's Professor Christopher Langmead from Monash University, one of the researchers involved in the clinical trials administering psilocybin to people with severe mental illness. He said Australia is in the midst of a mental health crisis, with one in 10 Australians estimated to be taking antidepressants in 2015. When you put it like that and contrast that situation with cancer or heart disease, it doesn't really bear thinking about. But how does this all really work? Much of how psilocybin operates on the brain is a mystery, with hallucinations varying wildly for each individual, but lasting positive health effects remaining for many patients in trials. Professor Paul Lignazzi, also from Monash, says it's a courageous undertaking. One of the ways that I think about how psychedelics work is that they bring about this kind of unprecedented opportunity to have contact with sources of distress in your life and work with that. It's pretty, you know, courageous work. Often people are coming face to face with the very experiences that they have either consciously or unconsciously been avoiding for much of their lives. But if you can do that in a safe and supported way, well equipped to do so, uh, then you can potentially address some of these, you know, sources of distress. Where am I, Shelbyville? Man, this is crazy. I hope I didn't brain my damage. I better check my pupils. Media depictions of psychedelic experiences range from fantastical to terrifying. But the reality of the trip was far from anything Aaron Sharkey had ever imagined when he volunteered as a healthy participant to take psilocybin and have his brain scanned. I looked up and all of a sudden the walls had patterns on it that weren't there before. And then one of the doctors walked in and I had a massive grin on my face and um, said, I, th- I think we're on here. Under the effects of psilocybin, it's some of the most vivid patterns and like intricate terracotta images I've seen in my life. So I was looking up at the clouds and it was just like, couldn't even see any blue in the sky. It was just entirely like beautiful white patterns. And then a really, really strange thing happened. One of the clouds turned into an image of like me as a baby and then all the clouds are me as a baby and then another cloud turned into to like me as a one-year-old and then all the clouds are me as a one-year-old and then over the next what felt like hours but in reality was probably a few minutes I, I watched myself grow up in the clouds Despite the excitement and promise associated with psilocybin, the economics of introducing a radical new treatment like this are tricky. Researchers say that without any form of government subsidy, a course of psychedelic-assisted therapy will likely cost between $25,000 and $35,000. So what we'll have initially, by the sounds of it, is essentially a treatment that is only available to a small number of people because of the by the virtue of the way that it will roll out and then it's going to be available only to an even smaller number of people because of the likely cost that's going to be associated with that quite frankly the patients that need this the most are going to be the ones that can't afford it now that was amelia costigan 
In today's final story, Angelina Maroulis investigates postpartum depression and how stigma and shame have shrouded the condition in secrecy. So you have this image of um, bringing the baby home and you put it to sleep and it eats and you go walking with a pram, you get lots of cuddles. That's sort of the rosy picture of it. But the reality is it gets overwhelming. You feel like you're failing and you're trying to love a human that's pushing you to the edge. That's my cousin, Tony. Last February, she became a mum to Leonora. And while she says it's the best thing that's ever happened to her, it hasn't always been easy on her mental health. For the first five months, I would say um, Leonora would barely sleep. It was challenging to get her to eat because she was so tiny when she was born. And it was just this vicious cycle of trying to get her to do that 24 hours a day. For new mums in particular, it can really be a huge shock to to what you're used to. There's quite significant biological, psychological and social changes that occur. Alexandra Ehrenberg is a psychologist and director of Breathing Room Psychology. She provides support to parents experiencing postpartum anxiety and depression. When you're at home and you are completely sleep deprived, so fatigued, you have a newborn that really needs your attention all the time, you can be so cut off from those social networks. And so that isolation can lead to loneliness and also lots of idle time for the mind just to be thinking, which can lead to some unhelpful kind of thinking patterns. You go in this circle of guilt and just survival And then when you talk to other mums, they make it sound so easy. And you feel like, well, why have I been given such a challenging baby? If it's not like this for everyone, why is it like this for me? Am I doing something wrong? Is it because of my anxiety that I have? Have I passed on some of my anxiety onto my baby? And that's why I was scared to have a baby to begin with. And you start to question all these things. And you just want one person to say, yes, me too. And when it's all happening within your own home, it's really hard to to sort of get an idea of who else is, you know, going through something similar. And what we can tend to see is that, you know, people don't talk about it as as much as we would like. Um, And then you internalise. So you can just go, oh, it's just me. I'm coping. I'm failing. We know mum guilt is massive already because there's huge expectations on women and mums in particular that it can lead to to things like low self-worth, guilt, shame leading into to worse feelings of depression. When I was really overwhelmed, I'd have to call Panda, the helpline for mother for new mums. And they were understanding, which was great, but it was always out of desperation I'd be calling him because I haven't I've got like two hours sleep in twenty-four hours. My baby hasn't stopped crying the whole time. I physically can't hold her anymore because I'm falling asleep. And I can't stop her from crying. So I'm crying because I can't stop her from crying. And then you feel helpless. And then there's no one to talk to about it. So, like, these are things you do not prepare yourself for. And um, I wish there was someone going through that at the same time. 
Tony says she still sometimes experiences these feelings of anxiety and depression from isolation. But when she does, she reminds herself that Leonora needs her support and that is helping her to learn to manage them. <laughs> good job! You're such a good helper. I'm definitely not where I was at the start. I try and reach out and create social interactions for myself and for Leonora. She's got little baby friends. So even if it's like something little, just go to the park for half an hour with a friend or go for a walk, grab a coffee. Just little, little interactions make a big difference for the day and for your mental well-being. That was Angelina Marulis. A massive thank you to mentors Mel Chun, Oli Krusek, and Dan Seymour. The yarn is from the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne. It's produced on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Our executive producer is Louisa Lim. I'm Thomas Phillips. See you next week.